Exodus 1.15-2.10 Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra, and the other Puah, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God. They did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife, a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could, no, she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and dabbed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young woman walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? The Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. The word of the Lord. Well, we just began a series on the book of Exodus. And one of the really amazing things about the book of Exodus is that um, Exodus gives us answers to two of the biggest questions that human beings have wrestled with throughout um, all of history. And those two questions are, number one, what's wrong with the world? And number two, what's the solution? Your answer to those questions is your theology of salvation. And every single person in this room, whether you're religious or not, has a theology of salvation because every single person in this room has answers 
to those questions. The problem is a lot of times when we look at the Bible's answers to those questions, uh, we don't have a very good understanding of what the Bible actually says about it. And as a result, if you're a Christian, uh, it's very difficult sometimes for us to really understand what it is we're embracing. Um, But even more importantly, perhaps, if you're not a Christian, it's important to understand this because you need to understand what it is you've actually rejected. And in my experience of talking to people, both Christians and non-Christians, one of the things I've seen is that a lot of times we just don't have a very good understanding of the Bible's answers to these questions. So one of the big things the book of Exodus shows us is what is salvation? What are the Bible's answers to these questions? What's wrong with the world? What's the solution? The Bible says salvation, and the book of Exodus is one of the best places to learn about salvation. Now, last week when we began, we, we were looking at the question, what is salvation? And, and we saw the book of Exodus teaches us that salvation means rescue from anything that prevents you from participating in and enjoying the full scope of God's vision for your life and in this world. Um, and, and that means, by the way, that salvation is not just rescue for your souls, although it is that. Because when we look at the the book of Exodus, one of the things we see is that Exodus is also a lot about social and physical and political and economic salvation. In other words, God's vision for the world is not only concerned with the eternal destiny of your souls. Because God's vision for the world is it's a a holistic vision. It's, It's a creational vision. It's, it's, it's about a renewed creation. It's about the new heavens and the new earth. So that's a very earthy vision. It's a very embodied vision. It's about eating and drinking and dancing and running. It's about a feast. It means the full flourishing, not just of your souls, but, um, but of all of creation. So that's what is salvation. But this week we start looking at the question, how does God's salvation come into the world? When we ask the question, how does God accomplish salvation? This passage actually starts helping us get into that question. And this is maybe especially important for us, especially as we think about those two questions. Because when we ask the the questions, what's wrong with the world and what's the solution? When we look around at the world, it's easy to see that something is terribly wrong with the world. But when we ask the question, well, what is God actually doing about it? A lot of times it's not as easy to see that God is doing anything about it. So for instance, I was living in New York City on 9-11. We just remembered that this past week. Um, 9-11, that is. And as a result of living there, I actually have a copy of the New York Times from the day after 9-11. And the front page of the New York Times that day was a big picture of the Twin Towers um, burning. And for many years, I've, I had that newspaper just kind of folded up in a box. But a few years ago, I was going through some things, and I found it, and I saw that it was kind of getting yellow and maybe needing some protection. So what I did is I took it to a framing store, and I had it framed to put it under glass and keep it protected. And when I went back to the frame store to pick up the picture, um, I was standing there waiting, and there was a man working at the store who was standing right there next to me. And when they brought out the picture, he, he, he saw it, and he looked at the picture, And he looked at me, and he said, God was asleep that day. When we look at this world around us, one of the easiest and most natural things for us to say is it's obvious that there are things that are horribly, tremendously wrong in this world. But when we look at the world, one of the things that's not easy for us to say, in fact, is tremendously difficult, is to see that God is actually doing anything about it. 
Our response is the same thing as the man in the frame store. God must be asleep. I can't see how God could possibly be at work in any of this. Friends, this passage that we just read helps us with that question. It helps us with that problem because it shows us not just what is salvation, but how does God's salvation actually come into the world? And when we look at this passage, we see in particular that God's salvation comes into the world in three ways, and we're going to look at each one of those things in turn. We're going to see that God's salvation comes into the world in hiddenness, in weakness, and in unexpectedness, okay? God's salvation, it comes into the world in hiddenness, in weakness, and in unexpectedness. At first, it comes into the world in hiddenness, um, One of the most important things that we could possibly see in this passage is something that's not actually in the passage. What do I mean? Well, first, let's take a look at what actually is here. When we read this passage, what do we see? Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, he's a paranoid tyrant, and it's his mission to get control over Israel. So the first way he wants to do that, we saw this last week, he tries to enslave Israel. But we saw also last week, it it tells us that the more they oppressed the Israelites, the more they multiplied. So that wasn't working. So what's the next thing Pharaoh does? Our passage this week starts getting into it. It says that um, he, he tries to kill all of the male infants, but he wants to do it on the down low. So he goes to the midwives and he tells them, look, if a male baby is born, I want you to kill it. But if it's a female baby, you can let those babies live. But once again, that doesn't work because in verse 20, it tells us that the Hebrew people continue to multiply and grow strong. So at that point, Pharaoh goes from a secret policy to a full-scale public genocide. And he says um, to everybody living in Egypt, not just the Egyptians, but including the Hebrews, he said, if any male baby that's born, I want you to throw that baby into the river. Now, do you see what's happening here? Things seem to be going from bad to worse. First, he tries to enslave them. Then he tries to kill them, but secretly. And lastly, when that doesn't work, it's a full-on public genocide. Things just keep going from worse to worse to worse to worse in this passage. Now, that's what is here. But look at what's not here, or at least what appears not to be here. Um, Every single scholar and commentator on the book of Exodus points this out about the first two chapters of Exodus, and that's that there is hardly any mention of God at all in these first two chapters. In fact, the only time God is mentioned briefly in this passage, it's from the narrator's point of view, not from the point of view of the people that are actually in the story. As far as the people who are in the story can tell, God's nowhere to be seen. God's not doing anything about their suffering. Things just keep getting worse and worse, and it doesn't appear that God is doing anything at all. But As we move along in the story, we find out that God is actually far more at work than we can possibly imagine, and that it's not just in spite of the painful and difficult circumstances, but through the pain, through the evil and the suffering, that God is actually at work in this passage. You know, the storyteller in this passage is trying to provoke us to have the same kind of reaction that the people in the story would have had. By, by reduplicating the, the circumstances, hardly mentioning God at all. He's trying to get us to say the same thing as the man in the frame store said to me. God must be asleep. God's not doing anything. God's not at work here. And yet over and over again in this passage, we see that every evil act of Pharaoh 
is actually working out for the accomplishment of God's purposes in the story of Israel. So it's only because Pharaoh said to kill all the male babies that the midwives act with such bravery and resourcefulness. It's only because Pharaoh said, throw all the male babies in the river, that Pharaoh's daughter pulls Moses out of the river, and and Moses ends up actually being raised in Pharaoh's own home. In this story, every bad thing actually turns out for good. Now, as readers of the story, it's easy for us to see that. But if you're actually in the story, it's very difficult to see that. If you're in the story, all you can see is that things keep going from bad to worse. If you're in the story, all you can do is look around and say, I don't think God is actually at work here in any of this. It doesn't appear that God is doing anything about this suffering. Now, friends, this first point, it's really very simple, but I don't think anything is more crucial for us to understand. It's the hiddenness of God. But the important thing for us to understand about this is that hidden does not mean absent. In fact, when it comes to God, we see this over and over again in the Bible, that when it comes to God, when God feels farthest, he's working the hardest. That's the message of this whole passage. When God feels farthest, he's working the hardest. So that's not the way our hearts usually work, though, because one of the brilliant things this passage is doing is it's exposing the false logic of our hearts. The logic of our hearts goes like this. The logic of our hearts says, well, it doesn't look like God is at work, therefore God must not be at work. This passage is undermining the logic of our hearts because when we say God can't be at work in this, I mean, I want to say this gently, but I have to say this. How could we possibly know that? You would have to be God to know that to say that God can't possibly be at work in the midst of these circumstances. One of the most beautiful things about the book of Exodus is that it's constantly pulling us up out of the story, pulling us up out of the painful circumstances, out of the evil and suffering, and giving us a God's eye view of what's really going on in this story and throughout all of history. That God in this passage is saying to each and every one of us, my child, trust me. This passage is saying, when God feels farthest, he's working the hardest. Now, here's the thing. That's easy to say. Just trust God. God's working really hard in the horrible circumstances of your life. It's easy to say that, but it's really hard to trust God in the midst of that. In fact, when you're going through really painful suffering, the more painful it is, the more horrible it is, um, how does it feel when somebody comes to you in the middle of that and says, now remember, God's working all the bad things out for good. You just got to remember to trust God. What do you want to say to somebody like that? You want to tell them you can just go stuff your trust in God. (laughs) But God himself in this passage, he says, I understand how hard that is. I get it. In fact, in this passage, God is actually giving us resources to not just to face the reality of how hard the suffering is, but resources to actually trust him and understand that God knows how hard that suffering is. He's actually giving us the resources for it. How? Well, think about this with me. Um, When you're going through something, the, the more painful something is, the more difficult the situation is, the harder it is to trust God when you're going through that, right? The more precious something is to you, the more vulnerable something is to you, the harder it is to trust God with that thing. And so when things go wrong with that, we we just want to say it's really hard to trust God in the midst of that. But God is saying, my child, I know. I know how hard it is to trust me because he gives us a test case in this passage. Do you know what it is? 
as I was studying this week and I was kind of realizing, I think this is the test case. I, I, I wrestled with whether or not to even bring this out this week because it, it feels so painful, it feels so vulnerable, but I think that's one of the main points of this passage. What's the test case in this passage for, for trusting God when things are really difficult and painful in your life? It's babies. There is nothing more precious than a baby. There's nothing more vulnerable than a baby. And therefore, there is nothing um, harder to trust God with. And there is nothing more damaging to your faith when something goes wrong with that thing. For instance, the great book, The Brothers Karamazov by Dostoevsky, many people consider that book to be one of the most devastating critiques of religion in all of literature. And the reason is because in that book, there's a conversation that happens between two of the brothers. One of them is a believer and the other brother is an atheist. And at one point, they're having this conversation and the atheist is telling his believer brother why he no longer has faith in God. Do you remember what his reason was? If you read the book, maybe in college or something, it's because of the horrible suffering of little children. There is nothing more precious than a baby. There is nothing more vulnerable than than a baby. And when something goes wrong with it, there's nothing harder to trust God with. And in this passage, God is saying, I understand, I get it, and I know how hard it is to trust me in the midst of that. There's nothing more precious. There's nothing more vulnerable. So much so that, you know, that's the word we use to describe anything that is really important to us, right? Right? If you have an important project or an important possession, what, what do we use to describe that thing? We say, oh, that's my baby. God knows how important these things are to us. Now, it's one thing to trust God with things that are moderately important to you, but it is another thing altogether to trust God with things that are supremely important to you. It, in this passage, God is actually saying, will you trust me with your baby? I know it's hard. Will you trust me? You see, Friends, this passage is showing us the hiddenness of God. But one of the most important things here is that that hidden does not mean absent, that when God feels farthest, he's working the hardest. But it's not just in in the hiddenness of God that we see God's salvation coming into the world. That's the first thing. But the second thing we see here is that God's salvation comes into the world through weakness. What do I mean by that? You know, we mentioned this last week. Exodus is actually volume two of a five volume book. So um, the five-volume book actually begins with Genesis. That's volume one. Now, we spent um, the last couple of years uh, going through the book of Genesis. And if you were with us throughout that series, you may remember that one of the things we kept seeing over and over again throughout the book of Genesis is that God is constantly undermining and overturning the cultural norms of the ancient world. So, for instance, one of the biggest cultural norms in the ancient world was um, that the firstborn son, that was the one who's supposed to carry on the family line. But over and over in Genesis, we keep seeing God skipping over the firstborn son and actually choosing the secondborn son or even sometimes the fourthborn son. He's always overturning the cultural norms. Or maybe even more um, um, importantly than that, women in the book of Genesis, women in the ancient world were... Um, already of inferior status in the ancient world. Um, but in the book of Genesis, God keeps overturning that norm because in, in the Bible, in the ancient world, um, barren women, if, if a woman couldn't have a child, that was especially um, excruciating for women because in the ancient world, your whole worth and identity as a human being, if you were a woman, was tied up in your ability to produce children. 
And over and over again in the book of Genesis, we keep seeing God choosing the barren woman, choosing the unloved woman, choosing the rejected woman. Those are the people that God is using. That's the ones that God is using to bring his salvation into the world. It's not the strong ones. It's not the ones that the world would say are important people. It's the ones the world would say are nobodies. It's the weak ones. It's the marginalized ones. It's the the ones the world would say are of no account. Now, we see that same pattern happening actually here in the book of Exodus. In Exodus, we we, um, just mentioned a little bit ago that there's hardly any mention of God at all in in, in this passage, right? But when we do see God mentioned, where is God mentioned? Who's he mentioned in connection with? It's the midwives. Women who, in the ancient world, women already were of inferior status, but, but midwives, um, cultural um, uh, experts will tell us, in that ancient culture, midwives were usually women who were incapable of bearing children themselves. They were barren. So they had two strikes against them, and yet those are the ones that God is using to bring his salvation into this story. Those are the ones that God is working with. And even more importantly than that, I love this. You'll notice that in this passage, especially in chapter 1, nobody gets a name. Nobody's named in the passage. Not Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. He doesn't get a name. Who does get a name? The midwives. Shifra and Puah. Nobody knows which pharaoh this was. Scholars argue about it. But everybody knows who these midwives were. Their names have gone down in history because of the resourcefulness and the bravery with which they acted. God is using the weakest ones of the world to bring his salvation into the world. In fact, I love the way one commentator talks about this. Um, Terence Fretham wrote a wonderful commentary on the book of Exodus. And in his commentary, he says that these midwives are doing what he calls creative civil disobedience. I love the way he talks about that. These midwives, they bamboozle Pharaoh. And it's because of their courage, it's because of their bravery that the people of Israel are actually saved. You see, God's working through the weak ones. He's working through the marginalized ones. And, And we see that throughout the rest of the passage. Who are the other heroes in the story? They're all women. So look at Moses' mother. It, you know, when Pharaoh gives the decree to throw all the male babies in the river, she's another one who's engaging in this creative civil disobedience because she obeys the command, but kind of in a subversive way. Instead of putting Moses in the water, she puts him on the water. Or who are the other heroes? Moses' sister. She's standing there watching guard over the baby as she sees him floating down the river. And and then when Pharaoh's daughter pulls Moses out of the river, she has the the courage to go up to the princess of Egypt and, and say, hey, would you like me to arrange to have somebody nurse that baby for you? She's part of God's salvation too. Or maybe... Um, most counterintuitively all of all is Pharaoh's daughter, because not only is she a woman, but she's a Gentile. She's a non-Jewish person. So she would have been seen as being one of the enemy. And yet it's this, this daughter of Pharaoh, this princess of Egypt. She's the one who has the courage to defy the decree of her father, the king of Egypt, and actually bring Moses into her home so that Moses actually ends up being raised in Pharaoh's home. It's amazing. Friends, God's salvation doesn't just come into the world through hiddenness. It also comes into the world through weakness. And here's what this means for us, practically speaking. This shows us the basic nature of the gospel. You know, when we think about how does God come into your life? How does God relate to our lives? One of the easiest things for us to think is that, well, you have to have something to offer God. If, if you think that you have to have something to offer God, 
then God's salvation can't come into your life. If you think that, that the only way you can approach God is from a position of strength or power or virtue or being a good person, then God's salvation, his renewing, healing, loving power, it can't come into your life. You won't let it. Because that's the paradigm for us. We think in our culture, well, God comes into the lives of people who are good. God comes into the lives of people who are acting with virtue and courage and, and sacrifice. That's our paradigm. So even, um, even if you've been going to church for many years, maybe even sometimes especially if we've been going to church for many years, we may say on the one hand, yes, I believe that, that God comes into our lives on the basis of grace, not on the basis of, of our works and our virtue and our meriting. We may say that we believe that, but, but the cultural norms that we live in are so powerful and so strong that even though we may say we believe that God saves by grace, the way we live on a day-to-day -day basis at a very practical level shows that what we really believe is the exact opposite of that. Because we can't escape the paradigm. That paradigm has tremendous pull in our lives. We think that if you want God in your life, it's all about being a good person. In our culture, that is the norm. It's all about being a good person. If you want God in your life, you have to be a good person. You have to be a virtuous person. You have to make sacrifices. You have to do great things. So much so that, that, that we think that unless you're really being a good person, God can't come into your life. And we may say, you know, here's how we say it. Well, of course, I'm not a perfect person, but I know in my heart of hearts that I'm a good person. Do you see the logic? The, the logic is, therefore, God loves me and accepts me. Because no, I'm not perfect, but I'm really trying to be a good person. That's the trying to approach God from a place of strength and power and virtue. That is not approaching God from a place of weakness. It's religion, but it's not the gospel because the gospel says that God's power comes into the world through weakness. And I'll tell you what happens when we do that, when we try to approach God from a place of strength. Here's what happens. Not only does our pride and our self-sufficiency push God out of our lives, but when something happens to our baby, we go ballistic because something is your baby. In other words, something is more important to you than anything else in the world. And whatever that thing is, it's your baby. And when something happens to it, it hurts. Of course, it's always going to be painful. It's always going to be sad. It's always going to be difficult. But, but if your basic approach to God in life is, well, I've been a good person, therefore God owes me a good life. That approach is utterly incompatible with the way we see God working in this passage. Because when, not if, but when your life goes south, when something goes horribly wrong in the circumstances of your life, what happens in your relationship with God? I mean, yes, it's going to be incredibly painful. It's going to be sad. It's going to be awful. But, but do you get bitter and angry with God? Does your heart get hard with God? The only reason that happens is because something's messing with our baby. And, and, and the fact that that thing is our baby shows us what our real God is. Something's messing with our real God. And we get angry at God because he's messing with our real God. Friends, unless you see that God's salvation comes into the world, not through strength, but through weakness, you're always going to be fighting with God. We're always going to be tempted to drift into bitterness and anger and hardness of heart against God. The only way to end the fight and find real peace is to embrace the reality that God's salvation comes into the world not through strength, but through weakness. Otherwise, we're constantly going to be trying to twist God's arm with our obedience, our virtue, 
um, in our goodness. Now, let me add one more thing before we move on to our last point, one more point of application. And it's just this. You know, the gospel is wonderful. It shows you that if, if you think you're somebody, the gospel humbles you. But, but if you think you're nobody, the gospel actually affirms you. Because remember who gets a name in this passage? Shifra and Pua. It's the midwives. The person who gets a name in this passage, it's not Pharaoh. It's not king of Egypt. It's not the person that the world would say, oh, now there's a somebody. No, it's these midwives. It's the people that the world would look at and say, they're nobodies. That's who gets a name. That's who gets commended in this passage. That's where God is working. If, If you think you're a somebody, the gospel humbles you. But if you think you're a nobody, the gospel actually affirms you because many of you in this room, you've grown up in a world that has constantly told you you're a nobody. But this passage, the gospel affirms you. It says, if you think you're a nobody, the gospel affirms you. It says you're somebody, that God is radically attracted to you, that God delights in you, that it's through the nobodies of the world that God is showing his salvation to the world. And that leads to our last point. We've seen that God's salvation comes into the world through hiddenness, And we've seen that God's salvation comes into the world through weakness. But lastly, this shows us that God's salvation comes into the world through unexpectedness. And this is perhaps the most amazing thing about this passage. Because every time Pharaoh tries to destroy the Israelites, his weapon backfires on him. Everything he uses to try to destroy the Israelites, it it always just ends up making them greater. Every single weapon that Pharaoh picks up to fight against God... That's the thing that God uses to defeat Pharaoh. It's the unexpectedness of salvation. And we see that especially with the story of Moses. You know, it's, it's really amazing. When all of the other plans to destroy the Israelites fail, it's only then that Pharaoh says, okay, let's throw all the male babies in the river. I mean, at that point, there's no more. Pharaoh's not playing anymore. It, the, it's an all-out, full-scale no holds barred, public onslaught. The gloves are off, and Pharaoh's saying, okay, it's on. Throw all the male babies in the river. But it's only because Pharaoh does that that Moses is actually saved. It's only when Pharaoh tries to destroy all the male babies, that's the way that Moses actually gets saved. So it's only because Pharaoh tries to have all the male babies thrown in the river that Moses' mother comes up with this plan to float her baby down the river. And it's only because Pharaoh's daughter draws Moses up out of the river that that Moses actually ends up being raised in Pharaoh's home and receiving all of the training and the education that he would eventually need to become the great liberator of Israel. And not only that, at every step of the way, you see this, it's like the plan um, is, is constantly in danger of falling apart. Everything is so risky in this passage. It's always in danger of falling apart. You see that especially with Moses' mother and her plan to save Moses. I mean, think about this. You want to save your baby? Pharaoh just commanded all the babies to be thrown in the river. You want to save your baby? How are you going to do that? Do that. Is this the plan that you would come up with? Oh, I know. Let's put them in a basket and float them down the river. No, nobody would think of that. And, and yet Moses' mother must have known that when she put that baby in a basket, that she was probably sending her baby to certain death. There was maybe the slightest bit of a chance that he could possibly survive, but she had no way of knowing that that would happen and no way of knowing how it would happen. It was, it was when Moses' mother, when she put her baby on the water, it was an act of ultimate trust. And friends, that simply points us forward 
to the ultimate Moses. Because Moses simply points us forward to another baby who would be born hundreds of years later. And that baby would grow up to become the liberator of his people. And just like Moses was born under the threat of of death from a genocidal king, this other baby was born under the threat of a genocidal king. And just as Moses had to go into the waters of death in order that his people could be saved, so this baby had to go into the waters of death in order that you and me could be saved. Because, friends, on the cross, Jesus Christ was cast headlong into the waters of death. You know, in the Bible, and especially in the books of Genesis and Exodus, water always represents salvation, but it's always salvation through the waters of judgment. Water always represents salvation, but it's always through judgment. So, for instance, in the book of Genesis, um, during the, the flood, Noah and his family, they went into the flood. The flood, those waters represented God's judgment on the world. But because Noah and his family went through the flood, the whole world could be saved. Or later on in the book of Exodus, we're going to see the, the, the greatest example in the Old Testament of God's salvation was the Red Sea. That the Israelites had to go into the Red Sea. And the Red Sea represented God's judgment on the Egyptians. But it's because the Israelites went through the Red Sea that they could end up being saved. Or here in this passage, we see Moses going into the waters. But it's only because Moses went into the water that Israel could be saved. Friends, it's pointing us forward to the ultimate Noah, to the ultimate Moses. But unlike Noah and Moses, Jesus had to perish in the waters in order that you and I could be saved. And this is probably the most unexpected kind of salvation that we could possibly see here. Because if you had been at the cross, if you had been standing there when Jesus Christ was crucified, would you have looked at Jesus on the cross, hanging there and said, oh, look, This is how God is saving the world. No. Nobody said that. Nobody would have thought that. Nobody, including you and me, would have ever possibly imagined that this is the way that God is saving the world. You know, Moses had to go into the waters to a likely death, but Jesus went into the waters to a certain death. But even when it looked like that was the end, that was the way that God was actually fulfilling his plan of salvation. Because, you know, what is the ultimate weapon of evil? It's death. Death is evil's ultimate weapon. But when that weapon was used on Jesus, it broke. Death is evil's ultimate weapon. But when that weapon was used on Jesus, the weapon broke in the enemy's hands. Because death came down on Jesus with its full force. It smote Jesus to the ground. It broke him. But in breaking Jesus, it broke itself. So that now, when you face the prospect of death, if you belong to Jesus, death no longer has any power over you. The only thing that death can do to you if you belong to Jesus is is simply make you more of what God created you to be. Death is actually our doorway into God's greatest glory for your life. So much so that, as the great old English poet George Herbert once said, death used to be an executioner, but now it's just a gardener. Friends, do you realize what that does for the suffering in your life, for the pain, for the hurt, for the sorrow in your life? If death is the doorway to God's greatest glory for your life, what does that make suffering? It's the candles that light the path. And I don't mean to minimize our suffering when I say that. Of course it's painful. Of course it hurts. We're talking about babies, sometimes metaphorically, tragically, sometimes even literally. 
there is no, seemingly no end to the level of pain and suffering that, that this world can inflict on human beings. I'm not trying to minimize that, but this passage is lifting us up out of our, our view of only being trapped inside the story, lifting us up out of the story and giving us a God's eye view and telling us, encouraging us that when God feels farthest, he's working the hardest. And so even as painful and, and as difficult and as awful as the suffering is, it's telling us that that suffering is simply the candles that are lighting the path to God's greatest glory for our lives. C.S. Lewis once wrote um, that because Jesus has already made a way through suffering and death, he's the one that blazed the trail so that when you and I walk through suffering and evil in our lives, we can know that Jesus is walking with us. And we can know that this is not some horrible mistaken detour, that somehow God's messed up his plan for our life and that we're on some horrible detour. No, C.S. Lewis says, this is the main road. Friends, I know this is hard. I know this is difficult to talk about. But the Bible has never been a book that shies away from the deepest darkest, most difficult realities of our life. So much so that God himself in this passage says to you and to me and to every one of us, my child, I know, I know it's hard, but will you put your baby on the water? In other words, will you trust me with whatever it is that's most precious and most vulnerable to you, even when it looks like I'm leading you further into the waters of death, not out of them? Dear ones, you can trust this God because this is the only God who knows what it's like to lose a child to a brutal act of unjust violence. When God feels like he's hidden, it doesn't mean he's absent. And when you feel weak, it's in your weakness and through your weakness that God is actually working most powerfully in your life. When God feels farthest, he's working hardest. And you can know that he's at work when you see the unexpected salvation of the cross of Jesus Christ the Savior who perished in the waters of death so that you could be saved through them. Let's pray.